spoiler alert, it's Geek Top 5! Yay! And there's a bunch of cool things happening in the world of geeks, but five of them particularly stand out. We've got them coming straight to you and ranked in order of desirability and attractiveness. Some real world news to start. Number five is this... I was going to start this off with poor Colin Trevorrow, but I guess it's not that bad, right? I mean, let's, not, let's, let's keep the violins away, because he's, he's doing all right, I think. Yeah, I, I think he, he has, more of his productions have made it out there than ours. <laughs> Um, Colin Trevorrow, who's best known to the two people in this room, is the guy who was almost going to make Star Wars 9 and then didn't. I mean, to be fair, he also did Jurassic World, which ain't too shabby. One of the highest grossing movies of all time, but probably one of the more middlingly received blockbusters. Uh, yeah, as far as, even as far as Jurassic Parks go, honestly. Jurassic, Jurassic World? Yeah, I'm sure it's got its fans, but uh, it doesn't quite have the same cachet as the first Jurassic Park. Not the same resonance. Yeah. But, uh, so he was out of the saddle for the, the second one, Fallen Kingdom, which isn't out yet, but is coming soon. June 22nd. But maybe because he was going to be on to write Star Wars 9, which is basically the blockbuster highlight of any director's career. Yeah, I mean, how many people... I mean, it's it, that was George Lucas's baby. I think most people wouldn't have even dreamed of being able to do a Star Wars movie, and now, all of a sudden, there were at least three available, and he was going to get to do one of them, and then Jurassic World wasn't very well critically received, and then his uh, picture he did after that, Book of Henry, flopped both critically and commercially, and then I think the people at the Lucasfilm were like, maybe we should take another look at this. Yeah, so they ended up putting J.J. Abrams back on for nine, which, you know what, I'm fine with. That's okay. But Colin Trevorrow, he figures, well, I can't get that Star Wars stuff in. I'm going back to Jurassic Park. He's making Jurassic... Jurassic Park 6, Jurassic World 3, even Jurassicer. I think that's the title they're going I'm with. pretty sure. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? <laughs> Still expected to star Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, which is a difficult name to say, but, I mean, I have nothing against them. That's that and, cool. I mean, that is assuming they make it through Jurassic World 2. We do see in the trailers for Fallen Kingdom where Chris Pratt gets enveloped in volcanic ash. And I understand in movie logic, that's probably just smoke, but in the real world, FYI, that's like superheated ash. Like, if we're applying real-world physics to that, we know from the trailer that Chris Pratt is dead. Just, I'm, like, I'm sure he's not, because Hollywood, uh, but he should be dead. So his ash would be grash? No. <laughs> not even a little. No? No. All right. Yep. In any case, this isn't that weird news. Um, we know that when he pitched like Jurassic World to Steven Spielberg, he pitched it as a trilogy. I mean, because you need at least a trilogy to get a blockbuster made these yeah, days. It's the only way to make money. Yeah, I mean, and really, that's lowballing it. with these you know five episode, seven episode things are what people are really looking for. But so no surprise that he's coming back. And to be fair, he didn't really leave because he's the co-writer of the second one that's coming out. Oh, no kidding. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, okay, was, so uh, yeah, this whole Jurassic World thing is totally his baby, huh? Yeah, that one's directed by J.A. Bayona. I don't recognize that name. I think he's best known for directing The Impossible, which was a great tsunami movie. Okay, well, that's a start. I mean, yeah. dinosaurs could be interpreted as disasters. I think, Personally, I think Jurassic Park works best when it's more of a... Like part of a metaphor, like for nature and stuff and science, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Like, that fall. is clearly way too big a concept for these movies, which seem to be most interested in let's have dinosaurs fight and yeah, and that's that. And now they're fighting a volcano. So well. I get, ah, see, I, I I I keep coming down so hard on Jurassic World, and I don't want that to re- and. 
And not only am I coming down hard in Jurassic World, but the fact that he got booted from Star Wars makes me think, like, oh, what a loser. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, my own movies have been so terribly right, right. successful. I'm directing Star Wars all the time. I don't want to sound like such a jerk by undermining him. And to be fair, a lot of very talented people have been booted from Star Wars movies recently. Yeah, that's another thing we've seen from Lucasfilm a lot, is they seem to be having a, like, they want to let people have creative reign with it, and then they immediately get scared and pull it back in. Yeah. Um, we're seeing a lot of that with the solo movie coming up, which uh, it's you know a lot of rumblings, a lot of indications that this might not be the blockbusteriest of blockbusters. We shall see. But uh, getting back to Jurassic World, uh, yeah, I, I I I don't have any real ill will towards it. It's not going to have the same cultural impact as Jurassic Park did. But it was the, the first one was a fun ride. I'm sure this next two will also be fun for their. I mean, it, it's hard way. to do dinosaurs terribly badly. Yeah. Even the other Jurassic Park movies, you know, they weren't great. I but stand by two. Two's got some great stuff in it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the, eh, eh, you can agree <laughs> to disagree. No, no. All right, fine. Jeez. <laughs> uh, anyway, Fallen Kingdom is coming out soon, and then we will see Colin Trevorrow's return. Uh, it's already scheduled for June of 2021. So uh, it's hard to mess up dinosaurs. I'm sure they're plenty confident that it'll be fine. Number four on the list, uh, last May we announced, we heard that there's a Deadpool cartoon coming from Donald and Stephen Glover, which is like, it's kind of like a Mad Libs or a Cards Against Humanity, like here's all these cool things that we like in one place. But yeah, that's not happening anymore. It seems like such a perfect fit. I mean, even just the idea of Deadpool as a cartoon character, uh, he shows up here and there. I mean, the main thing that I can think of is he appeared in one of those uh, Hulk versus Wolverine straight-to-DVD movies, and and he had a small role in that. But he's never had a series, and he seems like he'd be well-suited to sort of an adult comedy series, maybe on the Adult Swim Network, the home of... You know, the Venture Brothers and uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force and Rick and Morty. Yeah. They, they, Donald Glover has been quoted as saying that they were shooting for that Rick and Morty vibe. They wanted to essentially give that show a run for its money, appeal to the same audience. A very mature, very dark yeah. kind of tone. Which, especially after the success of the Deadpool film, like that seems like it seems perfect. It seems Match like everything would line up. Yeah, why not? Well, we don't know exactly why not, but there's been a lot of fun sort of things leaking out. Um, it's been a weird kind of cancellation. We've seen, like, a studio that was initially considered to do the animation for the cartoon, but then was dropped, released what they had produced as, like, this is what it could have looked like. And says, okay, that's a little weird because you weren't actually the ones making it. And then Donald Glover released 14 pages of a script. And a script it, that was, if you read it, it clearly seemed to be written after oh, it had to fired, be. yeah, <laughs> or at least edited after that. Deadpool that makes his fourth wall breaking jokes, referencing the fact that the series was canceled. Yeah, and so, that you're reading it and not seeing it. It's it's like a whole thing. Yeah, it's funny. It was funny. Yeah, um, but clearly, I, I guess he would have released it as like an example of what he was going for. But it's clearly not any of the original material. And that's the interesting thing. Like folks on other other sides of these have said that like no scripts were delivered. That like production for this show like wasn't anywhere near ready. They were talking about releasing it this year, but again, who knows what to buy? Yeah, I mean, Don Glover is a busy guy. He's got his TV series Atlanta. He's playing uh, Lando Calrissian in the Han Solo movie. He's got a lot of plate spinning, yet he also said explicitly that he was not too busy to do this. So there's a lot of he said, she said going on here. Yeah. I guess he said, he said. Well, yeah, okay, that's, uh, again, that's the problem with the entertainment industry, no, right? you're not wrong. 
The uh, another thing that's come out of uh, Stephen Glover, uh, his brother, and you know, co everything on this project. Apparently, there were rumors going around that there was a Taylor Swift episode, and he tweeted that yes, absolutely, there was a Taylor Swift episode, and it was hilarious, and that was the last straw for the network. I think he deleted that tweet though too. So it's like it's been real. Back and forth. Yeah. A lot is leaked and then a lot is retracted, and who knows what there is to believe. And Important side note, folks, it's the 21st century. You can't delete a tweet. Yeah. Like, yes, you can, but the, it doesn't, like, if it's on the internet, it can be found always. The the 14-page script was uh, was deleted, and yet, I mean, it took me a little longer than it would have normally to find it, but I did find it, and I was able to read it. I, yeah, I mean, I had no idea there would have been a problem to find it. I, I went straight to it. <laughs> So, yeah, it sounds like a lot of things went wrong behind the scenes at once. And in a way, that kind of mirrors the development of the Deadpool film. Like, nobody thought this was a good idea. An R-rated superhero movie with this kind of crude, ironic humor. Uh, and Ryan Reynolds, like, it ended up being like sort of his child. It was produced way under the budget he wanted. And uh, we've talked about this before on the show. We think that's a good thing. Sounds like the same thing was happening to this cartoon, except it just couldn't get off the ground in the same way. And that's painful for me. Certainly. But, uh, I mean, another thing I've noticed is that there is still a possibility it'll get made. It might just get made at a different studio. But one thing that seems to be clear is that the Glovers will not be involved in it. Yeah. Now, Donald Glover is a pretty funny guy. Like, Certainly. Th- like, whether you're following him because of Childish Gambino or just because of Community or whatever it is. He was a writer on 30 Rock. Yeah, you're, yeah that's wrong for me to overlook. But it definitely seems like we are going to miss out on something cool. It seems like, at the same way Ryan Reynolds is kind of uniquely suited to the character, it seems like Donald Glover would have been a really great choice to write for it. And I agree. I think he would have made a good choice. But if there is enough interest drummed up from this, and they do end up going in a different direction, I think there are a lot of other people who could do great work with this Character And it doesn't necessarily need to be Donald Glover. I, and don't get me wrong. I would have loved to see what he could do. And I think he would have done a great job. But I also don't think he was the only man who could do it. No, but is the next man to do it going to have the creative freedom to do it? Because, I mean, it doesn't sound like there was a personality conflict with Donald Glover. It sounds like there was a difference in vision. And it's probably not because Donald Glover was too conservative. <laughs> right? Right. So if they hire, you know, Ron Howard, <laughs> like, to make a paint-by-numbers cartoon... To be fair, Ron Howard is involved in Arrested Development, and that is one of the funniest shows ever made. So, I mean, he, he could have he could bring the great people on board. Uh, that's true, that's true. You know, get Henry Winkler to do the voice of, uh, of Deadpool, it'd be perfect. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna lie, I would watch that at least once. <laughs> In any case, for now, it sounds like the project is buried, so R.I.P. Deadpool cartoon. But, you know, the movie's going to come out soon, Deadpool 2, we'll see how much... I I expect it's going to be a big success, and if it is, I can see them revisiting it. Yeah. Wouldn't be the first time something like this gets resurrected. And hopefully not the last. Number three on the list. Uh, Speaking of R-rated humor, but like the darker side of R-rated humor... So the, the the news is that John Cena has been confirmed they want him to play Duke Nukem in a Duke Nukem movie. Now, okay, so before we get too far into the weeds on this, what is Duke Nukem? Duke Nukem is a video game franchise, almost, 
It is a franchise. It's not a hugely well-known it's one. Got like what three, four games in it? Closer to six or seven, okay. but yeah, like but nothing huge. Um, the the one thing Duke like we could go through the history of Apogee and 3D Realms, but the one thing Duke Nukem did right was Duke Nukem 3D. Uh, it was 1996. This was this was one of the games that made first-person shooters really popular, like on the heels of Doom and Quake. Duke Nukem 3D was. You run around, you shoot aliens, etc. But it was set in sort of a modern setting. You're running around in the city, as opposed to games like Doom, which are really fantastical. You're in hell, or you're in space, or, or like Wolfenstein 3D, where you're in like a Nazi castle and stuff. like Even that. Even then, Wolf 3D wasn't like a. It didn't catapult anything over in right. the same way that Doom did. Now, the thing with Duke Nukem 3D is it, it introduced those new environments. It had some cool new ideas for, like, stuff you could do in the game. They, they did things with weapons people hadn't done before. There's a shrink ray. You could, like, shrink a guy and step on him. But the, like, what, what gives this franchise, like, what it's iconic about is its star. The character of Duke Nukem is this parody of a hyper-masculine, like, American action hero. Like, to the point where it really goes way overboard. Like, a very short version of just how to describe Duke Nukem 3D is it's Doom with strippers. Uh, pretty on the nose. <laughs> yeah, that's essentially everything it is. And the character is this incredibly over-the-top, hyper-masculine, actually really uncomfortable in today's day and age right. kind of thing. Very much in the vein of 80s action heroes like Schwarzenegger and Stallone. He's all muscles and, and quips. But parodied, like, yeah. like turned up to 11 several times over. So somebody wants to make a movie about this, and obviously on the heels of Deadpool. Because Deadpool is a crude, like, language and violence and women undressing. But I feel like Duke Nukem is, like, how you do that badly. Really? Yeah. I thought this would... So so there's this, like, curse of video game movies where they never seem to quite hit right. You know, none of the Lara Croft movies have really gotten well-reviewed. None of the Street Fighter movies or, or really any video game movie has quite hit that sweet spot of making a lot of money and being critically acclaimed. Or even just generally well-liked. Like, the original Tomb Raider movies made a decent amount of money, but no one really looks back on them very fondly. You know, the Doom movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, perfect yeah exactly. Example. So, but I thought this was the perfect fit of... Actor and project and tone that might break that curse. Actor and project, I get it. The kind of hyper masculinity for that character, like, of course, a professional wrestler. Like, yeah, I mean, and he he is like muscly even by professional wrestler standards. I and mean, even who he is, yes. like, it fits. But Duke Nukem in itself, like, like the the most recent game it came out with, Duke Nukem Forever. Which, there's a whole other thing we can go into. It's a joke in video game circles. It's a terrible game. It was in development for like 15 years. It's, it's a whole thing. But the, like, the supporting characters in it are the wholesome twins, Mary and Kate. Uh, and at the opening of the game, like it's first person view. You're Duke Nukem playing on your Xbox. And the twins come from you know, the bottom of the frame and wipe off their mouths. Like That's the kind of humor. You can walk into a bathroom and use it, and then like there's a game, a trophy, a gamer score achievement for reaching into the toilet and pulling out the turd. And oh. Like, oh. like, it's it's that kind of nudity and gross out humor, like from the perspective of a twelve year old. Yeah, it sounds very much in like the bro vibe, kinda. So whereas I feel like Deadpool was a way of doing that kind of thing correctly. I feel like this is the way you do it wrong. And that's not to say they're going to do it wrong in the movie, but that's what was in the game. That's, that, that's the level of humor they're dealing with. You know, It's funny because it's a vibrator. So 
I kind of feel like this is a case of filmmakers taking the wrong lesson from Deadpool. Give them the, the benefit of the doubt. It still has. We have to see what they do with it. I, I mean, sure, like it could be completely different. Yeah, they don't have yeah. to make it like that game. They could make it more like you know the last action hero, where they they play on that concept, or there's uh, some third person who is remarking on how gross the humor is or how out of touch the character is. Things like that that might make that those sorts of jokes a bit more palatable to a wider audience. But is that what John like John Cena has a pretty good he's got an interesting track record. I, I you know, I'm not a wrestling guy. He came across to me as kind of a lunkhead when I saw him in on in any wrestling stuff I'd seen. But then he shows oh, yeah, up wrestling. Like sure. But when I saw him in, in Trainwreck, the Amy Schumer movie, he he was really funny and he was self deprecating. He shows up in he's shown up in a few other movies. He's in one coming out now called Blockers where he plays like a suburban dad. And in all the trailers he's very funny. He was also Ferdinand the Bull in an animated kids movie. So he's got more range and, and he's at least to me, won me over in a way that no other wrestler has since The Rock, you know, where The Rock has become this beloved movie figure who has broken free of the stereotypes of, of the wrestler. And and he seems like he's got all that going for him, so I think he could pull this off. But like what a project to do that with. Like it's almost like a, it's almost like there's a meta movie in there. Like, like this is John Cena trying to establish himself as a genuine actor, but he gets hit with a script for Duke Nukem. And again, I loved playing Duke Nukem. I mean, you know, my mom wouldn't let me play it. I had to go to Michael Jang's house to play it. <laughs> but still, like, I love the game, but I understand that it's not the most... Not the most mature, interesting franchise to work with. Well, I mean, just like Deadpool had its... You know, the the best of the comics are like the movie. They're very fourth-wall-breaking, and, and they're uh, a smart way of doing silly comedy. There are just as many Deadpool comics that are crass and gross and... and uh, going for a lower common denominator. Maybe this could be the heightened, elevated Duke Nukem movie we could all enjoy. The Fraser Crane of <laughs> Duke Nukem's. I wouldn't go that far, but uh, but yeah, we could see. Um, as it is, we're going to be waiting a while. It sounds like there still isn't much around this project except for John Cena. Yeah, no writer, no director, just a couple of producers and a studio. And a license. Yeah. Um, which I'm sure they'd love to revive the license, but we'll have to see what gets attached to it. Could go in any direction. I guess I'd, I'd see it. With the, I, I, I'll take a look. I'll see what the trailers look like. Of course. Yeah. Number two. <laughs> Did anyone ever buy a Steam machine? Okay, before we... <laughs> like, I, keep, I feel like I'm going to be saying that a lot this episode. Yeah. What is Steam for God, our listeners? Yeah. We've mentioned this before in the podcast. Steam is a, is a product run by a company called Valve. It is the digital delivery service for computer games. Uh, it's we, basically cornered the market in that yeah, sense. Yeah, it dominated. Like yeah. the way Amazon ships physical packages to your house, Steam is where you go to buy and download computer video games. And one of the things that I, I love about it is how innovative they are. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can go into certain games and, and make mods, and they're very supportive of that. And there's a community of Steam. It's it's not just a delivery service. It's a, a whole platform. It really works well for them. And it seems like maybe they got a little high on that because way back, when was this? This was September of 2013. Steam announced they wanted to get the, not just the digital delivery thing. They wanted to get into the hardware market. And I still don't understand exactly what the plan was. 
it seemed the way it always came across to me was that they were trying to get into a market where they would be competing with Xbox and PlayStation and Nintendo. It was like a box that you would get and you would attach it to your computer or uh, to your television and you'd play games on it with a controller and it would be just like a video game console. But that's not exactly what it ended up being. No, and it's I mean like let's let's be clear like the concept of playing games on your computer or playing games on a video game console like that's generally the great divide. Right? If you buy a video game console, you plug it into your TV, you buy games for it, and it works. You buy a gaming computer, you can buy all kinds of video games, regardless of like who the... You, know, you don't just have only the Nintendo games on the Nintendo. You can run all kinds of stuff on the computer, and you can mod it and do interesting things with it, but it's expensive and complicated, and you're downloading drivers and installing patches, and it's a, whereas with an Xbox, you just put in the disc and it plays. Right. That was the, the wall, right? And generally, you know, you would... The sort of games that you would play on a PC weren't necessarily the sort of games you would play on a console. Yeah, the Steam Machine, it seemed like they were trying to do both. They wanted to have a modular piece of hardware, like a computer, where you can put in new video cards and stuff, but with the convenience of a video game console, where you you don't have to wait five minutes for it to boot up and then execute your... I don't even get into it. I'm too old for that stuff anymore. (laughs) Uh, What it ended up being, though, is it turned out to be neither. Um, and Steam was, like, really pitching this, and they never got it right. And they initially wanted to release it for sale in 2014. By the end of 2014, they had, like, one that worked from a company called Alienware, which is a boutique PC gaming company, I yeah, guess is the way to put it. They make they make con- or computer towers and stuff that glow, and they're, they're, they're more about an aesthetic look than just being a performance yeah. machine. Performance is fine, really overpriced. Anybody right. who builds their own PC laughs at Alienware. Um, Alienware's was the only one that came out, and it was buggy and laggy, and it couldn't run all the games that Steam running on a computer could. And they couldn't get the controller right ever, and it was eventually, it just disappeared. Why is this in the news? Well, now it's disappeared from Steam's hardware section entirely. They're still trying to sell like their virtual reality kits and stuff, but it seems like they've given up on this thing. And they're trying to say, well, look, we just didn't have a lot of people clicking on it, so we wanted to save space. You can still access that stuff. It's just a little harder to find now. But that seems like a pretty yeah. neat thing. That would be like, you know, Amazon getting rid of their Kindle uh, tabs on just because not enough people are clicking on it. Yeah, imagine McDonald's saying, well, not a lot of people are buying hamburgers. We're just taking them off the menu. You can still order them. Right. But it's like, come on. <laughs> you guys have a problem here. It seems to me, and I think most folks, that Steam is trying to fill a niche that just didn't exist. Um, I, I know I could never figure out who is this for. Like, I've been both those kind of gamers over my life. And I was growing up, I was very into a, a PC. And I was constantly buying, and by which I mean like saving up my money and getting my dad to drive me to the <laughs> store to buy faster CD drives and replacement RAM and like all that stuff. And then when I got older and responsibilities and stuff, it's like I only have like an hour of free time a day. I don't want to spend it downloading drivers. So now I'm more of a console gamer, right? I just sit down on the couch and pick up my controller and a game plays. There's no, I feel like there's no middle ground between those two. Like, I don't see what the Steam machine would have added to my life. Yeah. Especially because everybody has a computer already. Right, right. If you know what Steam is, you've got a computer, and you don't necessarily need to get this Steam machine. You've already got access to pretty much everything it has to offer. Yeah. So, this 
like it's, it's kind of a weird story because it's so rare to report on Valve and Steam doing anything that fails. Right. Like they're like the, like they do, like you said they dominate the PC market. They they rule the roost. They haven't actually made a game of their own in a while. But back when they did, like Half Life, Portal, Team Fortress, like all these hugely successful games that are still being played today that people are still begging for sequels for. Like, how much money do you think they spent designing their own hardware line and designing an entire way to operate around this and then just abandoning it? Mm-hmm. And of course, yes, Gabe Newell, the, the Steam, Mr. Steam, has come out and said, well, we're not abandoning it. We're just, you know, not acknowledging it anymore. <laughs> and that's completely different. And everybody's rolling their eyes. Come on, Gabe. And like, I think part of the problem is that Steam seemed to be in competition with themselves. I mean, they sold a device that would help you connect your computer, your existing computer, to your TV, which seems to be getting right in the way of selling these Steam machines. And they also sold uh, controllers that you could connect to your regular computer. So again, they're basically giving you everything you need to make your own Steam machine without having to shell out the four hundred to six thousand dollars they were charging for their various versions of the Steam machine. Right. Which is another problem. There's a million versions of it, just like there are a million other computers that do the same thing at various prices. Yeah. Plus, if you buy a computer, it does more than the Steam machine does, and you can use it like a computer. Yeah. So, what's the point? Nobody knew what the point was, and now it's gone, and they're refusing to admit it like a sullen little child, and it's, that, that's just a shame. Harsh. That, that, I'm going there. Listen, Gaben, prove me wrong. Or release Half-Life 3. Whichever. I, I'm happy with the Portal 3. Portal 3 would be good, too. Just, just getting that out there. Anyway, moving on. Number one on our list uh, who, we're talking about the Fantastic Four again, and it's not to complain about a movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, we can complain that there doesn't seem to be a movie in uh, production, but uh, I, I coincidentally, I recently heard that John Krasinski, uh, Jim from The Office and director of big movies now, he has said that he wouldn't be opposed to being Mr. Fantastic in a Fantastic Four movie, and mm. maybe even his wife, Emily Blunt, could be uh, Sue Storm. It, this sounds like more like a, like a thing that the couple should look into on their own private time. <laughs> Look, I wouldn't be opposed to that casting. That's not terrible casting. No, of those characters. but we're we're steps away from that. Let's let's, let's pull it back. Pull it back okay. for a second. The, so, Fantastic Four hasn't been in the comics for a while. No, the official title was canceled in April of 2015, and then the characters, or at least the Richards family, disappeared uh, at the end of, or in January 2016. Yeah, it's no secret that Marvel has been running down the production of the superheroes that they can't make movies for right now. Well. Up to a point. Like, they can't make movies, or they couldn't make movies for the X-Men, but the X-Men is a huge cash cow for them, so they still made comics for them. They just didn't create new mutants. They just kept them sort of in a box. Right. But Fantastic like, Four has never, or in, at least in recent years, hasn't been a huge seller, so it was a lot easier to just phase them out. But the same way, like, the bigger teams, like, you know, all the characters in the teams right now match the teams in the movies. You know, like, the, the Guardians More of the Galaxy less, yeah. have a lot of members. No, they're those same ones who are in the movies now. The Avengers, like, you know, the Jim Zub, we love him. He brought back Bucky, Winter Soldier. Happened around the same time, the Civil War. Like, like it, yeah. it, it's a thing. It's, it, Marvel has never admitted it publicly, but it's a well-known secret. They're promoting their movies, and the movies are promoting the comics. Why wouldn't you, right? Yeah. So everyone sort of assumed... They didn't own the license to Fantastic Four, and clearly Fox was doing as little as possible to make a Fantastic Four movie. They just wanted to ashcan it to hold on to that license. Seemingly, yeah. That was, what is it, so 2005 and 2007 were those, those first two, which are pretty meh. Oh, 
there Although are, the more recent one makes the well, yeah, like, masterpieces. Well, yeah, and then the one in 2015 is like they're going to be studying it in film schools <laughs> for how to not make a movie. So it hasn't been a lot of F4 stuff. But now it sounds like Fantastic Four are coming back. So, uh, coincidentally, I'm sure this all has been announced since the purchase by Disney of the Fox movie studios. Giving them the license back to make a Fantastic Four movie. Right. A pot coincidence. Complete coincidence. So this is uh, C.B. Cebulski is the new editor-in-chief of Marvel. This would seem to be one of his first big uh, announcements as the, the man in charge of Marvel Comics. And it's it's quite the return. Uh, we don't know too much about what's going to be happening or where the Richards family has been. Uh, the Thing, because he's a popular character, he didn't disappear. He was in Guardians of the Galaxy. The Human Torch, also a popular character, he stuck around with the Inhumans. And they've recently had a title called Marvel. Marvel 2 and 1, where it was the two of them palling around together. So the whole team hasn't disappeared, but it'll be interesting to see where the Richards have been, why they're back, how the, the rest of the team comes back together. And the people who are going to be behind it are Dan Slott, who was the Spider-Man writer for at least 10 years. I think we did a story about him finally ending that run. And uh, he announced he was going to be doing Iron Man. And that seemed like, I don't know... From a comic book fan perspective, a bit of a step down from uh, Spider-Man. Spider-Man's pretty big. But getting to do Fantastic Four, bringing them back after this hiatus, that is what you leave Spider-Man to do. And the artist on the title, at least at the beginning, will be Sarah Pacelli, who is a fantastic artist and I believe is one of the co-creators of uh, the Miles Morales Amazing or Ultimate Spider-Man. So I'm excited for this. It'll, I'm, I'm really curious to see how it'll all come together. Dan Slott has a pretty good track record. I think it took him a little while to win over a lot of the Amazing Spider-Man fans, but with you know the Superior Spider-Man storyline where right. Doctor Octopus took over, with the Edge of the Spider-Verse, that stuff really made a big impact on that character and made him an important creator in that character's lifespan. And I'm sure he'll do the same for the Fantastic Four. And it's, I mean, it sounds like a cool premise. It's like they're superheroes, but they don't bother with the whole secret identity thing, and they're a family. Like, they're, like, so part of the story is, like, their dysfunctional family dynamics and the relationships between them all, uh, which you know, I've always thought is something that The Incredibles actually did really yeah. well. Really, The Incredibles is the best Fantastic Four movie that we've ever seen. Yeah, by, by leaps and bounds. Yeah. And, so, like, the characters' powers are clearly, like, the girl, the daughter who turns invisible can also make the force fields. Like, that's, right. that's and the, uniquely Sue Storm. The mother has stretching powers, which is Reed Richards' powers as well. It's mm. all very tied together, which I have no problem with. Yeah, somebody wanted to make a Fantastic Four movie but couldn't get the license from yeah. Fox. So if you want to see like a way we think would be really cool for this story to be, go watch The Incredibles. They have a sequel coming soon. I'm sure it'll also be great. But behind the scenes, the Fantastic Four, like whether you, you like the comic or not, it is an incredibly important comic. Because that's the story that Stanley, at least in his own personal mythology of the Marvel Universe, that's what he did when he was like, well, I'm going to be quitting doing comic books anyway. And my wife has suggested that what I should do is do... The comic I want to do, you know, they're not letting me do these superhero comics the way I want to do them, but if I'm leaving anyway, I'll just do it and see what happens, and that's when the Fantastic Four was created. They are the birth of the modern Marvel Universe. So, yeah, kind of weird that they've been out of this whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, Marvel Comics relaunch, geeks taking over the world thing. Be wonderful to have them back. Definitely. Maybe they need a cooler logo. Just saying. Ugh, them's fighting words. I'm just saying. It's a little, it's a little bland. In any case, that was the news this time around. I will be right back with our special guest segment, so please stay tuned. 
Welcome back to the second half of Geek Top 5. We have with us, yet again, old friend of the show, Andrew Wheeler. Thanks for coming back, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me back. So, this time, we're going to go in a completely different direction. A topic we have yet to cover uh, with any enthusiasm on this show, and which I have been aching to talk about, James Bond. What, what list have you brought for us this week, Andrew? Uh, so, I wanted to talk about the top five James Bond women, or as they're known more colloquially, Bond girls. <laughs> so, what are your what are your uh, your bona fides when it comes to Bond girls? What's where's your expertise lie? So, James Bond is is a sort of lifelong obsession for me. I've been a, a fan since I was a, a boy, and uh, it, it, I think it was my brother that that introduced me to to uh, the Bond movies as a kid. And I've just always been drawn to the sort of the glamour and the excitement of that world. And it's something that's sort of fed through in my own work. Um, so I write a series of novels. Um, Valentin and the Widow, the first volume is out now. And it, it, there, are, there are multiple volumes coming out this year. And it's, it's a similar sort of globe-trotting adventure. Um, exotic locales and, and giant epic villains and uh, world-ending schemes. Um, just with a more sort of... Well, a, a considerably more progressive bent than, than the James Bond. <laughs> it novels. would hard for it would be hard for it not to be. Yeah. So, so yeah. So it's a, it's it's sort of Bond in a period setting, filtered through my own uh, politics. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that I love Bond for all its many flaws, and have always been uh, um, obsessed with Bond and. The Bond girls, you know, as a gay man, there's no there's no titillation for me in the Bond girls. They represent something different to me than they might for for a, a straight Bond fan. They are they are part and parcel of the glamour of the world, and they sort of represent the resistance to what James Bond represents. And that's interesting to see explored through through different characters, uh, the the successful and and less successful attempts to resist James Bond. Usually they fail to resist James wow. Bond. can you blame them? <laughs> <laughs> um, but at least, you know, a lot of them try. And, uh, and, and yeah, they, they, they are the best of the glamour and just having these um, often very tough, deadly women, it, that in itself, even in a sort of regressive sexist uh, setting, was kind of refreshingly different. You didn't see female assassins in a lot of movies back in the day, you know? But, but for Bond... You, you pit him against deadly women because that's that's who he is. He's a man who is sort of hyper-masculine. And so you want to set him against hyper-feminine uh, opponents. And so I think that's a lot of the, the appeal of the Bond girl. Now, I have to say, this is a spoiler for your list a little mm -hmm. bit, but the, the latest... I don't know if that's the right word, but the, the latest Bond girl you've had you've got on here is from a film from 1985. Yes, yeah. and one would imagine some of the more recent ones from the the Daniel Craig iterations might be more progressive portrayals. That's but they true. didn't make the cut. That's true. They didn't make the cut. <laughs> Terrible, embarrassing, really. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's just something. There's some of the cartoonishness has gone um, in the more recent Bond movies, and I like most of the Daniel Craig Bond movies. I thought Spectre was was pretty bad, um, but I, I enjoy those movies. And Eve Moneypenny came very close to cracking my mm. my list. She's maybe number six um, because yeah, the the modern version of Moneypenny I think is a fantastic character. I think you know M counts as a Bond girl now, mm. or again Bond woman, and uh, and Judy Dench's M is is a phenomenal character and certainly deserves a, a spot. But they're so archetypally tied to the 
the world of Bond in a different way, that putting them on this list felt like the wrong the wrong move. It mm-hmm. felt like it would be a statement. Well, then, yeah, let's, let's get well, to the list. All right, so number five from the movie Thunderball and played by Luciana Palazzi is Fiona Volpe. Um, Fiona Volpe is, for me, a sort of a quintessential Bond girl. She represents that sort of deadly assassin girl, the one who is supposed to fall for Bond's charms and, in her case, ultimately is able to... She she resists him insofar as she does not fall in love with him. She's she's interesting that she 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 will sleep with him, but she won't turn for him, and that's a that's a a, a really fun um, twist on the character on on the archetype at that early point in the Bond movies. But she's also just I mean Luciana Paluzzi I think it is um, Luciana Paluzzi is an incredibly glamorous woman, and she she looks like what you think a Bond girl looks like in your head, I think. she's She's got a style and a uh, presence that really makes her um, one of the, the most memorable Bond girls. I, I gotta say that there's a scene where she reveals to him flat out that she's a villain, and yeah. they have this moment where they sort of try and outdo each other with how little <laughs> they were interested in sex with each other the, the like previous night <laughs> it was it's it's fun to watch and and sort of it's all done with innuendo because yeah. they can't just flat out say what they would right. say it's nowadays. not hbo yeah it's, it's yeah. 1965 and <laughs> it's a great scene and something you don't expect from from a 1960s bond film so that was uh, thunderball that was the fourth connery film yep uh he's yeah, I don't know. What do you think of his evolution by that point in the the series? Um, you know, one of the interesting things about Sean Connery is is people say how sort of fed up he was with it. He's one of the he's one of those first actors to get that sort of. We're now familiar with the idea of an actor being locked into a franchise for a long time and and going through sort of ebbs and flows of interest in the character. Not everyone can be Hugh Jackman who can play a role for seventeen years and still be giving it his all. Yeah. Um, but I think. The, the more weary that Sean Connery got, actually, the more he sort of was sort of bedded into the role. Um, so I don't think I don't think it ever suffers from him him being long in the tooth, which is why Diamonds Are Forever is actually one of my favorites, even though a lot of people hate it hmm. because that's the movie where he is just done with the whole thing. <laughs> but I like that layer in his performance. I do think it makes him <laughs> seem more like a colder mm. assassin type, which is adds to the character. Is yeah. it, is it the, I'm, I'm too old for this kind of thing that's in there. Yeah. Uh, that, that, you know, that obviously has acted very well since it's a reflection <laughs> of his actual feelings. Um, but focusing back on uh, f- focusing back on Fiona, uh, so the interesting thing I found about this is that, like like you said, there's a lot of build up between like of her being the anti Bond. Yeah, they're both like calm, cool, collected assassins. They're both played off directly off of each other. But her end is kind of like it's not an epic showdown. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a brilliant uh, Bondian sort of Bon Mo ending. You know, it's it's one of those. You know, we all associate Bond with the the clever one-liner, um, and he gets one of those when he when he uh, dances her to her death. <laughs> right. um, it's it, I think it's actually you know it's it's a, a great sadness to lose such a good character, and it isn't as you say it's not a great showdown scene, but it's such an elegant death scene that he literally turns her into the path of a, an assassin's bullet, and then sits her down in the middle of a crowded dance floor and says my friend is just dead i think is the line yeah yeah um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah like it's it's, it's so neatly, cold uh, it, it is cold and that's quintessentially who he is right and yeah she deserves better and that's what makes it so 
powerful, actually. You know, she shouldn't have gone out like that. Um, but it just highlights what a, a, an absolute a-hole he is, <laughs> if, if I can yeah. say that. I think Absolutely. we can get away with that one. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, she because their, their interaction is so much more personal, it feels like she's a more uh, uh, powerful villain in that role than, than uh, Blofeld is. Because mm. a lot of their interactions with Blofeld are at a distance. And this is, is like as intimate as it gets. Yeah. Yeah, the you know having a good sexual tension between hero and villain, something I enjoy. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't often get to see. You know, Bond doesn't doesn't get that with many of the the male assassins that come along. The, sadly, the one uh, exception would be uh, Javier Bardem's yes. character in yeah. Skyfall, yeah. which I thought was a great scene between the two of them. Absolutely, it was a lot of fun. So let's go to number four. Yeah, now I, 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 you said before we started recording that you don't entirely see <laughs> eye to eye with I'm me. I'm dying, I'm dying to, <laughs> to hear about this one. Number four uh, is the lady herself, Miss Grace Jones, as Mayday in View to a Kill. She is quite different for a Bond girl because she does not fit a sort of traditional uh, idea of beauty. She's, I mean, she's Grace Jones is a stunningly beautiful woman, but she's not the Bond archetype of mm-hmm. a beautiful woman. Um, she's very sharp, you know. She's exactly. She's sharp. She's um, a little more masculine with her, her muscular build and her very short hair. She's a very dark-skinned black woman, which is not the the Hollywood ideal. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of racism and colorism that goes into to Hollywood's idea of what makes a beautiful woman, and she is by far a better physical threat than Roger Moore at the age of who knows what. <laughs> yeah. Almost 60, I think. You know, this is, this is a case of a, a Bond and a Bond girl where everyone watching it knows that she can kick his ass. Mm. Like, there is no question about it. Mayday is a hundred times tougher than that James Bond. Um, and that's part of the appeal of that character to me, is that she's she breaks the mold of Bond girls in a lot of ways. She's one of the great henchmen Bond girls, and there's. I will grant you that. There's a, there's a, there's a few of them. You know, Fiona Volpe also is a, a henchman Bond girl. Yeah. Um, and there's at least one more. Yeah, there's exactly one more on my list. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so uh, I think she's, uh, and, and it's Grace Jones. She's, she's a dynamo. I, I have to say, uh, coming to the film without um, much knowledge of Grace Jones, mm-hmm. I found her performance. A little stiff, <laughs> <laughs> not not the most natural actor, uh, and there's a lot of awkwardness in the movie. Like there's a scene where she and uh, Christopher Walken are, who's the villain of the yep. piece, Zorin. She's trying to. They're trying to find where Roger Moore's bond is. He's he's. They're trying to pin him down because he he's gotten loose and he's not in his room. And she goes back to her room and finds Roger Moore naked in her bed <laughs> waiting for her and it's just the most awkward <laughs> love scene I've ever seen because it, it gets even more awkward because Christopher Walken encourages her to bed him and yeah. she like climbs into bed with him and mounts him and it's it's you know no one looks comfortable <laughs> <laughs> no and I mean I don't think you know I don't think Roger Moore was was uh, an appealing catch for her really <laughs> there's a I wouldn't blame her for, for for all the awkwardness of, of that totally scene. True. And this is this is a woman that was with Dolph Lundgren for a long time. You know, she knows what a beautiful man looks like. <laughs> yeah, um, it's not sixty so. year old Roger Moore, <laughs> right. and and she's very eighties. You know, what could be more eighties than than Grace Jones as a Bond girl? 
True. It's, it's uh, and as Christopher Walken's Bond girl, you know, like that's that's great. <laughs> and the other thing about her that I think uh, makes her stand apart is that she does change and she does flip to Bond's side. She does, but it's not because she's in love with him. It's because Christopher Walken betrays her. Yeah. And and I again, it's it's. I don't know how you feel about the movie, but I found it not to be the strongest Bond film. No, no. And her turn from villain to sidekick was so out of nowhere <laughs> and so abrupt. It, it again, made it a uh, surprise to me that she was on your list. Yeah, I can see that. There's there's there's, there's a clunkiness to that movie, for yeah. sure. But it, it comes down to what an icon Grace Jones is, what a, what a stylish and and different character she is in this pantheon of women that she she feels utterly distinct and she feels of her time um and she feels like more than a match for james bond and and if you think about the the next um black bond girl that i can think of is halle berry and what a stark contrast to, to grace jones yeah, like Halle Berry is a much more like, like traditional presentation yeah. of what Hollywood wants that Bond girl to be. Down to emulating the first Bond girl in her debut appearance, walking right. out of the sea like Ursula Andress, wearing the sort of the belted bikini. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a blatant piece of pandering that they thankfully then recreated with Daniel Craig. Right. <laughs> when, when he walked out of the sea. All right, let's go to number three. Number three, uh, also controversial in some circles. Um, both the, the girl and the movie uh, have a lot of detractors, but uh, it's Jill St. John as Tiffany Case in Diamonds Are Forever, which I'm on record as saying is one of the best Bond movies, and most Bond fans would disagree with me strenuously <laughs> about that. So, what's tell tell us why? Like, what's? Um, I love Tiffany Case because she is both at she is at times and in a way that seems consistent. She is both the ditzy Bond girl and the calculating Bond girl. And she does the about face like a couple of times in the movie. She's a, she's an, uh, an obstacle and an ally uh, as and when the mood suits her. And it's all about her character. She does fall for Bond, but she's very dedicated to her career criminality. There's never really, you know, she, she talks about going straight, but you never get the sense that she means it. She just wants a way out of the life of crime so that she can go on committing other crimes somewhere else. Her introduction scene where she uh, appears wearing one wig and you know, she appears as a as a brunette um, uh, when Bond first spies her and then steps into the other room and comes out as a redhead. The, just the fact that she is established from the get-go as this chameleon character uh, makes her this sort of wonderfully mercurial Bond girl. Um which then makes sense of the fact that she can be both the sort of the flighty, vulnerable damsel and someone that's sort of got a, a bit of a hard-bitten uh, approach to her and sort of, I don't know, She, you, you, I get the sense that she swears like a sailor, but you can't see that in the Bond movie. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's not that kind of movie. And yeah, I think Jill St. John does a, a fantastic job with the character. Um, and she she just, she has a, she has a ride, you know, her character takes you along through into the world of James Bond in a way that I find really exciting. So the idea that she can't ever be trusted, mm-hmm. um, that no matter what, she she's like, I guess I, I want to associate it with a Catwoman thing almost. <laughs> Just that like, no matter what, you're not hearing what's finally at the core, and maybe there's nothing there. Yeah. I'm, maybe the cynical part of me is saying, well, in a way, that's not quite the traditional Bond girl. Now, maybe that's a subjective argument, but does it sort of like in your mind does it sort of separate her from the pack 
and that she's doing something extraordinary by not getting caught in that loop of either I'm going to fight James Bond and die or fall in love with James yeah. Bond. Yeah, I mean, I think the the common thread to all five of my Bond girls is that there is a sense of independence to them. There's a sense that while they could fall in love with Bond, they could also quite happily get on with life without him if he if he walks away, um, which he always does. Um, and in some cases, they they honestly don't want him to stick around. Um, I you know I think Tiffany Case is a is a woman who will use Bond for her own ends, and then when he's gone from her life, she will probably not think of him very much. Um, and I appreciate that. I think that's a you know that there's a defiance in that. Yeah, the, she's she's an opportunist, and she's in a world where that it makes sense to be that. And it's no coincidence that this movie is called Diamonds Are Forever, that it's a movie about sort of greed and opportunism and everyone being on a grift. And she's the ultimate grifter. Yeah, okay. That's just, I didn't make that connection before, but that's, that's a fair point. Her name is Tiffany Case. She's, you know, that's, that, that fla- flags luxury from the get-go. She's, right, uh, yeah. she's named after a jewelry case. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, she's, she's definitely a cool character and uh, one of the first American Bond girls. Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to admit, watching the the clips, uh, I was surprised by the accent, but I guess I shouldn't have been. uh, (laughs) uh, So she's pretty cool. All right, well, let's go to number two Mm -hmm. on the list. One of the most famous. Absolutely. Maybe the most famous, and and she she is certainly number one on a lot of people's lists, and I can't argue too strongly. You know, she's, uh, she's maybe... 1.1 1.1 in my heart, you know? She's, <laughs> mm, okay. It's a very close top two. Uh, but, yeah, number two goes to Honor Blackman as Pussy Galore in Goldfinger, um, the kick-ass lesbian criminal girl gang leader and uh, and pilot acrobat. I mean, that's a pretty good description right off the bat, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell of a list of credentials. Yeah, a long business card. <laughs> Um, and you know, as with uh, I think the, one of the commonalities to a lot of these these characters is that they have this really distinctive and sort of iconic look to them. It's something that you again with with the more recent Bond girls you don't tend to get quite such a striking visual. They don't have a an instant costume that comes to mind when you think of them. You know, if, if you say Vespalind, I couldn't tell you what she's wearing. Right. Necess- necessarily. I think Eva Green is, is striking enough that yeah. she comes to mind. But yeah, you're right. There's no specific outfit that right. comes to mm-hmm. mind. Like I, I, if I try to picture what she wore in the casino scenes, I'm thinking, well, she, she, I guess she wore a black dress. Yeah. I don't remember what it looked like. Um, whereas Pussy Galore, I think of her in her like her, her riding outfit, her high, high-waisted sort of uh, pants and the white shirt. Jodhpurs or whatever yeah. they were. Um, and like, and she has a little scarf around her neck, and it's like that's such a great look. It's so of the time. It speaks to sort of lesbian chic. She is such a. She is both a beautiful woman and an incredibly handsome woman. She has this uh, sort of gravitas and intensity to her, and that beautiful gravelly voice that that she has, and the sort of the ash blonde hair. It all speaks to her being such a sort of potent, uh, self-contained woman. And she's she's one of the like most uh, accomplished criminals in the in the Bond canon, really. You right. know, she's she's not a lead villain, but she's clearly very good at her job, um, and gets away with it pretty much at the end. The only problem is that she sleeps with Bond, and in a pretty ugly scene. Yeah, you know, it's it's sort of to to the detriment of the franchise the way the character is treated because she is established. Well, she's not established as gay because they couldn't say it, but everyone understands her to be gay. Right, that, that's one of her first lines: "Is like, like, like don't charm me, I'm immune." Yeah, yeah. It's the, yeah. They were 
they're doing everything they could but saying that. I think in the novel it's a bit more explicit. Yes, it mm. is. Yeah, and and so yeah, so either she's bisexual or she's making an exception for Bond. And you know, I don't think they were trying to go for the bisexual thing. I think they were trying to go for this notion that is Ian Fleming's notion that you can cure a lesbian with, yeah. with the right man. And you know, that is that is loathsome. And there is a lot of loathsome stuff in Bond movies. And if you can't accept it, then I think that's fine. You know, like if there are pe- there are plenty of people that hate the Bond movies, and I totally get why, um, and I wouldn't try and change their minds about things. If you can get past it, if you can understand these, if if you can contextualize these things, everyone can understand it. If you can contextualize these things as products of the day and and learn to sort of parcel it out, then you can still understand where the strengths of the movies are, and you you don't have to, I think, buy into what the movie is selling you in terms of sexual politics to appreciate what's good about the movies. And Pussy Galore is is a fantastic character. She's easily a character i think that you could build a franchise around you know mm. if they wanted to do a spin-off set of movies with a female lead i mean we mentioned halle berry's jinx she was supposed to carry her own franchise i would have much be much more excited to see a pussy galore series but i don't know how you put her name in the poster <laughs> so. which i mean is something <laughs> i wanted to bring up like We've mentioned a couple times on this show, we have this thing that we call lightsabers in the rain, where it's it's things that you just don't ask. The answer is, it's a movie. (laughs) But, like, a lot of the Bond girls have silly names, but does Pussy Galore not (laughs) just push that envelope a little bit too far? Is there anyone who hears her introduce herself and doesn't go, oh, come on, (laughs) really? Listen, Dr. Christmas Jones, uh, there there are worse names, I think. I mean... But, But... is there a name that's more on the nose? I, <laughs> I mean, the, the secondary Bond girl in Diamonds of Forever is called Plenty O'Toole. So, <laughs> which is also, she's up there. She's up there. And I just you know, I, Xenia on a top is not <laughs> is not ambiguous. Except Xenia doesn't mean anything. Yeah, at least so. it's vaguely faux <laughs> Russian in that like Holly, Cold War Holly Goodhead. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but that's that's another one that is kind of pushing the thing. But <laughs> right. like, at, at one point, you're trying to make a bad pun. At another, you're just like, "What's your name?" Oh. Lots of vagina. <laughs> like, <laughs> at some point. The thing is that uh, this was the third Bond film, so you can't even say they were running out of ideas. Right. <laughs> but they're taken from the book. You That's know? true. So, but, which, I, I don't know the order of the books, uh, but where does Goldfinger lie? Like, maybe by that point, Ian Fleming was like, ah, I don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely an evolution to to the shamelessness of Fleming, I think, as he goes along, as he, as he learns what his own tropes are. But I still think Goldfinger was fairly early. I'm not, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Was it the first? No, I think no. Uh, Casino Royale was the first. Casino Royale was the first, yeah. And then from there, I lose the, the thread. But Doctor No and Goldfinger, I think, are both quite early still okay. in the... Uh, yeah, but I couldn't... I, I, I forget off the top of my head. I should know these things. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but yeah, so, so Pussy Galore, despite her sort of rather... Despite the highly problematic nature of the way her story plays out, I think she still stands as, as just one of the all-time great characters for me in cinema. She was also one of the the older Bond girls at the time of filming. That's I think true. she was 36, mm. which I mean, she doesn't look it. No, but I mean, I think it also I mean, not that that is that old, but I mean, by the standard of Bond girls, that's practically ancient. Yeah. I well, there was so much controversy when Monica Bellucci was, well, I say controversy. There was a section of the internet that was up in arms about Monica Bellucci being right. cast as a Bond girl, and it's like what is going on in your head where you don't think Monica Bellucci <laughs> can be a Bond girl? Yeah, she's maybe seriously. the most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> and you're complaining that she's like past the age of 40. I mean, that's right. just... 
People uh, can be gross. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Especially on the internet. Yes. Yeah. Don't go there. <laughs> All right, but there's still someone even higher than that. What's there, our number one? There is. There is. And, and people probably have worked it out. If, if uh, Pussy Glow is number two, I think there's only one person that can be number one. And that is Dame Diana Rigg of On Her Majesty's Secret Service as... Tracy Bond is the, the the way I've written the character's name down. She's only Tracy Bond for, for a few minutes <laughs> yeah. of the movie. Uh, Teresa De Vincenzo, I think, is her, is oh, her well done. given name. Um, like Countess, right? She, yeah. Yeah, so, Contessa. Contessa, that's but right. But it's the same thing, I guess. Italian. <laughs> Italian. <Yes. laughs> um, and she is the woman who tamed James Bond. I mean, that's her, her great claim to fame before Vespa Lind came along and mm did the same thing with a different version of the character. Um, she was the, the great love of James Bond's life and the great tragedy of his life in sort of ensuing movies. She's uh, a really wonderfully rich and complex character. Um, she's a, a glamorous woman who struggles with depression and anxiety and understanding her place in the world. And, of course, her story is just this incredibly emotional tragedy. And on top of that, it's Diana Rigg, for goodness sake. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, she's one of those uh, Avengers characters. Um, she's uh, she's a, just a phenomenal actor, an incredible beauty. Um, it's so great to see another generation learn to appreciate her on Game of Thrones. Yeah. And not realize, you know, this is a woman who has been uh, doing kick-ass genre work for a really long time and, and deserves all, all the accolades that are thrown at her. Definitely. Uh I would say the only knock against her, and this might be a personal thing, but the fact that she's George Lazenby's uh, <laughs> Bond girl. Oh, it's not her fault. It's not her fault, but man, uh, I know a lot of people love that movie, mm-hmm. On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's hard for me to get past Lazenby's performance. <laughs> I, I find him almost intolerable. He's he's wooden. He's not a, a natural actor, but I I think the movie is so strong that... that I, I can get past it. Mm. I, I Yeah, I get it. I, I can see the problem with him. You know, there are some ways in which he makes an excellent Bond. He's he's uh, maybe even more handsome than Sean Connery. Um, he has got a lot of charm. He's just not relaxing in the role. Um, and it's a shame that he couldn't get to grips with the role better. It's I, I think it's a shame he didn't get to make another mm. movie to try and maybe see what else he could give it. But he did manage to make one of the best Bond movies just in terms of the overall story, the the the, the tragic arc of it, having a really great Blofeld to go up against. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of the great ski bonds. So, <laughs> Is that? Was it the first <laughs> ski bond or did Connery have uh, uh, some before that? Oh, gosh, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't. I couldn't tell you what's on my head. I can't believe that Connery would. If if Connery, he definitely doesn't ski in Diamonds of Forever. So yeah, either he never skied or no, he skied in From Russia with Love. I think. Oh, okay, that might make sense. Yeah. Regardless, we've gotten a bit into the weeds. <laughs> let's not uh, let's not leave Diana Rigg. We don't have to. Um, let's actually let's talk a little bit about the character. Like we had mentioned before, a lot of the things about the women on this list were yeah. the, the independence and the power and like the counterbond. This isn't that. Mm. Um, she starts off like the character is very damaged and is yes. in a very bad place, which is frankly hard to depict in a film nowadays. We're more aware of the sensitivity around those issues, much less in 69. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in a James Bond film. Especially in a James Bond film. So, I mean, obviously she's standing out from the rest of your list in this sense. What is it about that that sort of like is, is creating that draw? 
Yeah, I mean, I think she's still a tremendously strong character for all that she is. You know, we meet her attempting to kill herself, and that's that's something you can't sort of downplay. Um, but that doesn't, I think, make her a weaker person. I think that makes her someone that just had a lot of struggles to face in life. And I think that, you know, wh- when you deal with depression and when you get through depression, you you don't lose any of your independence. So she is still, I think, a woman who... If she can manage her her mental illnesses or her her problems in life, um, doesn't need a man. Having a man like James Bond and being able to bring him to heal gave her a support that that I think enabled her to to keep on living. But I think she could have found other ways to do that if she had never found Bond. So I would maintain that she is a strong and independent character. That she happened to fall in love with James Bond is actually, you know, her, her tragic demise it's it's the it's her undoing because she fell in love with a a dangerous man who who loses everything he loves so um but that there's a great profundity to that the great the fact that the thing that she needed the the thing that she chose to enable her to survive is the thing that ultimately kills her through no fault of her own that's that's an incredibly powerful story in a bond movie starring george lazenby right right yeah (laughs) I think one of the other great things about her is is so few things carry from one Bond film to the next. You know, you have generally the character stays the same and the tropes around him, yep. M and Money Penny and Q, but there are very few references to past adventures. Yep. Except that Tracy Bond gets brought up from time to time, sometimes subtly, sometimes directly. Yep. But the fact that he was married is something that gets mentioned uh, again and again, which is more than you can say for most of the Bond girls who he he encounters. There's usually one movie, and that's it. You never hear from them again. Yeah, and again, the fact that it was George Lazenby meant that it was difficult to sort of go back to that well as as clearly as they could have. Like they they end up with Daniel Craig, of course having the Vesperlin story and then having, you know, the reason why he doesn't sleep with the Bond girl in the next movie is because he's grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, and his relationship with Vesper gets to play out through, or the, the repercussions of that relationship, rather, get to play out through the subsequent movies. And we couldn't really have that as emphatically because it was George Lazenby and because the next movie went back to Sean Connery and was sort of a, a, a bouncing away from that. Like, there's, there's really no evocation in Diamonds of Forever of Tracy. I think in any. I think in the the cold open, he's going after Blofeld and right, to right. avenge her, but never really like explicitly mentions right. why he's doing that. <laughs> um, and then so and then suddenly you're onto Roger Moore. Like you you go through two bonds immediately following yeah. her death. So if anything, she suffers more from a hard reset. Yeah. So that, like yeah. the semi episodic nature of the series, rather than a general. You know, moving on from that character, right? There's no time to properly grieve because it's it's hard to it's hard to have that thread get followed through when it's like three different actors and yep. three different movies. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's surprisingly deep for a, a James Bond <laughs> Bond girl relationship. That's fair. Okay, well, that uh, yeah, oh, no, you're right. Number one for sure. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us again. You do a lot of cool stuff besides watch James Bond movies. <laughs> Uh, just I mean, you write a lot of cool comic books that we really enjoy. <laughs> if people want to check out your stuff, what kind of titles should they be looking for? Um, so uh, you can check out if you want to see my progressive take on Bond. Then Valentin and the Widow uh, is my novel series that you can find on Amazon or at the publisher's website. That's ChapterHouse.ca. I'm also writing Freelance, which is a gay superhero comic, also through Chapterhouse, uh, with art by Juan Samu and Vanita Viriak. 
And uh, you can check out my only press series, Another Castle, that is collected in trade paperback um, with art by Polina Ganeshow, and that is a feminist fantasy adventure story. Cool. And looking for you personally, it's still uh, at Wheeler? That's right, yep, at Wheeler on Twitter, W-H-W-E-L-E-R. So jealous. That's (laughs) that's so easy. (laughs) All right, well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me again. And while we're there, additional thanks to the Geek Top 5 staff, to Stella Simeonova, our webmaster, who's, it's her job to get this to you, and to Jamie Reum, our musician-in-chief, the man behind Geek Top 5, the theme song. You can find him, Jamie Reum Official, on YouTube, and his podcast, Originals, Covers, and Beyond. Uh, Jamie Reum, that's R-E-A-U-M-E, if you're looking for him. Um... Top five Bond girls. There's a lot to pick from, and that's a hell of a list. <laughs> if you have any complaints, probably a few circling around diamonds are forever, but if you have anything you want to let us know, there's all kinds of ways that you can sort of express your anger towards us. You can find us on email at uh, geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash geektop5. We're on Twitter at geektop5. And you can always leave us a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. This has been Geek Top 5. I, I was tempted to do it in a Bond accent, but it's just, <laughs> just, it would just be just a nightmare. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again in just a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs>